Well, good evening, everybody. How are we all doing? Great. All right. Well, my name is Drake, and I'm excited to be here. Um, love the worship. Love the way that Isaac calls God Daddy. That's always a beautiful thing. It is. No, it's, yeah, you've got a close relationship. I love it. Um, so, guys, I- I'm pumped to be up here. I've been talking about and thinking about living in Minnesota for a while now, and a couple weeks ago, my wife and I moved up here, and so I'm excited to jump in. We're going to be in Ephesians 1. You can feel free to turn to that if you got your Bible or your phone. Feel free to do that, Ephesians 1. Um, but today, we're going to be talking about how does the Bible motivate people to live? Because I think our culture actually has a very different perspective when it looks like how do we, how do we motivate someone to live? Our culture's take would be work hard to become somebody. Like if you work really hard and are extremely motivated, you will earn what you deserve to earn. And we've kind of had this fed to us our whole life. Like if you look at things like positive reinforcement, like if you do good things, you will earn a good reward. Or we think of work hard and you can be anyone you want to be And we, I mean, we kind of know that's not true, um, because I, basketball didn't go too well for me. I, the only picture of me in the yearbook on the basketball team was me sitting on the bench. They decided to put that in as a great joke. So that statement isn't true. Um, And then, to go along with what culture says, I I pulled up a famous philosopher. Um, You know, one of those philosophers that just goes by one name, like I don't know how they can create that sort of um, name for themselves. But this is from uh, Madonna. Um, Madonna, <laughs> Madonna says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and probably never will. And I think there's a lot in this quote, and I think a lot of this has actually been hardwired into us that we have to work extremely hard to become somebody. And then we have to continue to prove that. And if we want something, we have to earn it. And a lot of times we can take these cultural ideas and they kind of drift their way into our walk with God as well to where we're like, if I can have a relationship with God, I have to be a perfect moral person. I have to have my act together and able to come before God And if we try to bring that cultural idea into our Christian walk, it'll be exhausting. Because I don't care if today you had an amazing day where you had the greatest um, devotion this morning, you were praying continuously throughout the day, and you were serving the poor, you were doing all of these great things. Even if you had a perfect day following God, which none of us ever will, the reality is that we would have to do it again the next day and the next day, and the next day. And 
the reality is that we, we would have to deal with the sin of our past as well. And so the issue is not necessarily what do we need to do on the outside of our life, what do we need to change on the outside of our life, but rather what is happening in our heart that needs to change. Okay, so I've learned a lot uh, since getting married. So I got married two and a half years ago to my wife, Paige. Uh, and one of the things I've learned the most about is plants. So <laughs> as a dude, I didn't really, in our house, Bromega, I didn't have too many plants. But my wife <laughs> loves her greenery. So we got the plant that is like the pinnacle of all house plants. It's called the fiddle leaf fig. I don't know if you, any of you know about it, but this thing is special. So we got one of these. And so we had people over, and obviously it, it, it like worked its way into our house too. We're like, hey, this is our fiddly fig. And then our connection group, over the weeks, the conversation began to change a little bit. Because it was like, hey, why are the leaves so brown? And the conversation began like, how much more dead does this plant look this week than last? And even one time, someone on accident just grabbed one of the leaves that was stale, broke it off, and Paige wasn't there, so I didn't know what to do. I just put it back. I just, like, <laughs> set it back in the plant, and we're good to go. And so as this thing was like, obviously, this thing's going downhill, we needed to do everything we could to save this fiddle leaf, because it was so precious. And so we moved it in front of the window that was bringing in the most sunlight. My wife set up a humidifier, like, right next to it, so it could get all the humidity that it needed, but it just kept escalating worse and worse. And we found out that this plant had a thing called root rot. And so what happens is that the roots begin to rot away, and it doesn't matter how much you do on the outside of this plant, if you do not address the roots of this plant, it will continue to die. And so for our lives, we can get caught up in looking on things that need to change on the surface of our life, but if we do not address the roots of our heart, it will lead to more and more brokenness. Lasting change will happen when we take time to look at the roots of our heart and then replace what is there, whether it be insecurity or frustration or anger or loneliness, with the goodness of Jesus. And so Paul is speaking to the Ephesians, and he's looking to give them a new way of motivating themselves, an upside-down way of motivating themselves than what culture would say. So our main idea tonight from Ephesians 1 is that you are to remember who you are in Christ. And so as we look through this, I want to answer three questions. So our three points are, number one, who is the one taking action in this passage? Two, how do we respond to that with our sinful hearts and our fallen state? And then three, I want to look at how ought we respond if we are understanding the gospel correctly. So you can go ahead and open up to Ephesians 1. We're going to be starting in verse 3 here. It goes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have 
redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, so the the first point that we're looking at is who is the one taking action in this passage? And I want to start off by asking, like, why does Paul intro his letter with such a beautiful exaltation of the gospel? Like, Paul had lived with the Ephesians for three years. He was doing ministry with them every single day. Like, these people knew that Paul was all about Jesus. They heard the gospel from his lips day after day. Why does he need to repeat it to them? Why is this the way he starts off this letter? And the reason is that we, as well as the Ephesians, are quick to forget the gospel. And so I don't know if any of you have seen the amazing movie that Adam Sandler stars in, 51st Dates. Um, But if you haven't, let me give you a little recap of the storyline. So Adam Sandler, his character, finds this girl that he is amazed by. And so they go on this date, have an amazing date together, and he sees her the next day. And she doesn't know anything about him. He's incredibly confused. And so what he does is that he kind of goes down the rabbit trail of discovering her story and finds out that she had a crazy accident that has now given her a rare form of amnesia to where she can no longer remember the day before ever since that accident happened. And so what Adam does, because he wants to still be with this girl, is that he creates a movie for her to watch every single morning and it walks through what happened. It walks through the, the effects of the accident. It shows big life events, like their wedding day and other major events. And what he's trying to stir up in her is he's trying to recall to mind who she is. He's trying to show her, hey, this is what has happened in your life, and this is who you are today. And what Paul is doing here is he knows that we as Christians have a form of gospel amnesia. Like we forget the truth of the gospel day after day. And so we need this to be laid out to us over and over. And so as we look at this text, who is the one acting in this passage? God is the only one taking any action. Like, we are passive recipients this whole time, and God is doing everything. God is the one who chose us, who blessed us, who made us holy and blameless, adopted us, redeemed us, brought us into the family of God. No one in this room has any standing to be patting themselves on the back that you have done something to earn your salvation. Paul doesn't give you any room to do that. He he lays it out that God has done everything for you. And so he does this, and actually, he, he wants to re-emphasize over and over the reality that God is the one acting. He does it by showing who's responsible for your salvation if you put your faith in Christ. And he also wants to do this by showing the timing of our adoption. So the first one, it's easily laid out in verse 3. So if you look again, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, guys, I've tried to think about about that phrase, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, so often 
And I have no idea what that means to its full extent. But we get that now because of the blood of Christ. Like that should be Christ's inheritance. And he has blessed it to us as well that we would be recipients as well. And that is only in and through the blood of Christ as it says that redemption is earned through his blood. Because the reality is that there's no other way that can deal with the weight and the depravity of your sin. Like we are too flawed, we are too broken to try to claw our way out, to make ourselves right with God on our own. No other gospel will make us right before God. Christ has wiped it out our sin out completely. And he didn't just like wipe away our sin and make us a clean slate to where we now have to have good moral behavior. No, he said, I'm going to wipe away your sin and treat Christ on the cross as I should have treated you. And I'm also going to gift you Christ's perfect record. So we now have the perfect record and the reward that Christ deserves from his perfect life. We have so much in store for us as Christians, and it's completely and solely through the blood of Christ. And so next, he walks through the timing of our adoption. So there's a couple words that um, pop out to us, I'm sure, as we read verse 4. So it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so a lot of times, if you guys have heard these words before, um, like chosen, elected, predestined, uh, a lot of times they probably stir up a little bit more concern in our hearts. They probably create a little more questions or frustrations. But then I, I would ask you, do you think when Paul was writing these words to the Ephesians that he was seeking to invoke more stress or concern in their hearts? Like as Paul was laying this out, was he trying to make a more questioned Christian as he was doing this? And I would say, no, he, he wasn't trying to create more concern. He wanted to build up confidence in the hearts of the believers because he re-emphasizes that we have no responsibility with our salvation by saying it happened before the foundation of the world. Like you weren't even born yet. You haven't even existed. You had no ability to do one amazingly righteous act for society and you had no ability to fall flat on your face and sin before a holy God. What he is saying is that God in himself has brought you into his family completely by his own hand. And the reality for us is that if God is the one that brought us into his family, he is also the one holding us in his family. Like we depend on the strength of God's might, not on our own ability to remain with Christ. Look with me to verse 13. And guys, this is... I'm not going to lie, this is one of the verses that any time that I'm wrestling with doubt or frustrations about my faith, this brings me so much confidence to keep pressing on. And it says, So, and when you believed in the gospel, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 14, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so what he's saying is, when you put your faith in Christ, 
You were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and he, God is guaranteeing your eternal inheritance, and he is holding it for you so that one day you might be a recipient, and all of it to the praise of his glory. So what Paul is trying to do here is basically saying, look at all that God has done for you as a Christian. And if you're not walking with God, look at what God has done for you. And all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus as your Savior. So a, a year ago, uh, my wife and I bought a house in Iowa City. And we spent our whole summer remodeling this house. Uh, and one of the things that we had to tackle was the floors. And so I don't have any real experience with that. My dad has all the tools, all the abilities. So I called my dad up, and I had him come and help me put in the floors. And when I say help me, I mean he, he kind of lined up everything, gave me a direction of what we were going to do. He um, cut the pieces, or he, he measured the pieces to the right length, and then he installed it, and he nailed it in. So you might ask, what did you do, Drake? Uh, I... I basically picked out the next piece of wood that I wanted to be cut. He would mark it on a point. I would go to the saw, cut it right there, hand it to him, maybe grab him a glass of water. Those were basically my responsibilities. And so when we were giving people the tour of the house, uh, if someone said, hey, Drake, did you install these floors? It would be foolish of me to try to take full credit because no, when someone said that, thankfulness for my dad stirred up in my heart. I'm like, no, I just helped out. My dad did 95% of this. I am so grateful for his abilities because I could not have done this on my own. And that's what Paul wants for us when we read this passage. He wants us to realize that, yeah, we don't have any ability to be made right with God, but look at how Christ has done it for you. And would that stir thankfulness and would that stir awe in our hearts that would cause us to worship him all the more? He's trying to set our heart on fire by the grace of God. He's trying to reiterate time and time again of God's work so that we would not fall to another gospel. That we would not fall to another way of us earning our way to God. And when we see this as a complete gift, verse 6 says that, it all leads to the praise of his glorious grace. God receives so much glory when we just appreciate the gift that he's given us. And this is why Paul lays it out this way, because he wants us to know that we just accept what God has done and praise him for his great work. And so Paul places such an emphasis on the gospel here at the beginning of this letter because he knows that we in our hearts Turn to other ways to feel right with God. So my next question is, how do we respond? In our, our broken heart, how, how do we actually respond to try to be right with God? Because I think, at least my sinful heart, a lot of the times, I want to earn a right relationship with God. Like, I want to do it my way. I want to prove that I can be a great moral person for God, that I can obey live obedient to him, and in reality, it's me forgetting that I'm a son of God who has already had his adoption earned for him, and it's me operating as an orphan who's trying to prove himself to somebody, to trying to prove himself so that he, so that I might be adopted in, and in the reality, my heart in that moment 
the true desire is that my heart's want is to not need Jesus. Like I'm trying to find every way that I can earn a relationship with God without having to need Jesus because maybe some worse Christians would need him, but I don't need him myself. And so I wanted to walk through four ways that a lot of us can deal with our sin. And I ask you to, to ponder through these and think, what one of these do you wrestle with yourself? And how can you just run from this way of hiding or, or dealing with your sin? And the first one, as I just said, is hiding our sin. And so a couple months ago, we decided to sell our house. And so I had to... Um, get pictures of the house, lovely pictures to show online for everyone to see it. And, but we had to do it in quick notice, and so our house was a complete mess still. And so what I ended up doing was I went around to every single room and took everything that was in that room, stuffed some things in the closet, I threw everything else in the hallway, and then I angled the camera in the perfect way so that you did not see in the hallway. And when I took the picture, that room looked spotless. And when I continued to do that throughout our whole house, the house looked amazing. But what you didn't see in the picture of, say, the office was the other side of the wall where all of the junk was just piled up. And what I want to say is that I believe a lot of us do that with our life and with our sin all the time. That we try to put on a front or we try to put on a face that we have it all together. And so we tuck the, the parts of our life that we don't want anyone else to know to the side to present something better or that we might be a better person that we want people to know. And so because we, we wonder, like, what if they knew this about me? Like, what would they think about me if they knew this area of my life that I've never told anyone else about? So that's our first response is that we can hide from our sin. Our next is that we can compare our sin. So I know this is one that I wrestle with all the time is if I'm struggling with anger, if I'm struggling with any sort of sin, my heart directly wants to find someone else who I think is actually struggling in my own mind in a deeper way and it actually makes me feel better about myself. And so I'm using other people as almost like a, a stepping stool for my own identity. Like I'm trying to tear other people down with their brokenness and try to forget about my brokenness and lift myself up. Next, we can try to fix our sin. So this, this might be for the people who don't really want to talk about maybe some of their issues. Maybe a little more independent and what you try to do when sin comes up in your life is that you're like, I'm not going to tell anyone about this I'm just going to put my head down and try to get rid of it from my life. And then maybe in a month's time, I can tell someone that this was a part of my past, but I'm not seeking help. And what, what I would say to that is that, guys, Satan wants to isolate us. Satan doesn't want us to live in community with other people. He wants to put us aside so that his temptation can work all the more. The grips of his temptation can sink in more. Because it would be foolish for us as broken people to think that we can defeat our sin on our own. And lastly, so we can hide, we can compare, fix, and lastly, we can offset our sin. So what I mean by this is I, I've seen this in my own life as well. When I have a hard day or when I have 
yeah, just a day where I see my sinful heart and my brokenness come out in various ways. Instead of going to God immediately, maybe I'll just go and try to read a ton of Bible verses. Maybe I'll just try to live in prayer or maybe I'll try to serve in some way. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to forget about what I did in my own sinful heart by trying to do good moral things to almost cancel it out in a way. So none of these actually address the issue that's going on in my heart, in our heart. We're just trying to push it to the side and press on. And though God has given us salvation, we want to earn it. And the only way for us to earn it is to forget about the biggest issue in our heart, and that's our sin. It would be like if, if one of your grandparents came to you and said, hey, I've been thinking about you a lot lately, and I got you this gift because I love you. And so as they said they got you this gift, you like pull out your wallet, and you're like, okay, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. I'm pretty sure you don't have Venmo either. But like, I can, I can do like monthly payments. Would that, would that work for you? And like, no, like we, we love you. We, we got you this gift for you to enjoy. And you're like, okay, maybe I could like mow your lawn every week. Like I could do chores around the house. Whatever would work to just earn back this gift that you got me. And they would they would respond that that is ridiculous. I got this for you to receive and for you to experience joy at receiving it and thankfulness. I got this for your delight. You don't have to earn it. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for us in the gospel. And every single one of those four that I laid out, and there's many more that we can have, they're not out of a heart to live a life honoring to Jesus. Though in the moment we might think, yeah, I want to be a better Christian, it's not actually out of a heart of that. It's out of a prideful heart that thinks that there's a possible way that we can make ourselves right with God on our own. It's completely out of pride. And what that's actually doing is it's us attempting to rob God of what it says in verse 6, the praise of his glorious grace. We're trying to rob that praise and redirect it back at ourselves so that other people would look at us and say, look how great of a Christian they might be or that they are. And so we're trying to turn that praise on ourselves. And guys, we do this all the time. I do it all the time. I forget what God has given me and that it is a complete gift, and I try to earn it on my own strength. But then what happens is that we become crushed by it. Like, am I even good enough? Am I even a Christian if I wrestle with these things? When our efforts are at the center of us following Christ, the Christian life becomes exhausting. Only when we make Jesus the only one that is solely responsible for our salvation will we experience the joy and the freedom that Christ has freely extended to us. And so I want to finish off by how ought we respond. So if we're understanding the gospel message correctly, how should we respond as Christians? So the first, the, the main thing is that we need to remind ourselves of this gospel message every single day. And if we do that, we are to be the most freed up people in the world. Like we don't have to worry about hiding our sin because the God of the universe saw it completely. And when he did that, he said, I'm going to go die for them because I love them. We don't have to compare our sin to other people because we come to terms that when we compare ourselves to a holy God, we all fall so far short. But yet he has provided the way for us to be back 
in relationship with him. Jesus has completely taken our sin upon himself, and this actually allows us to live in the joy and freedom that we're called to live in as Christians. And I think one of the big turning points for me um, was a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones where he says that we spend far too much time listening to ourselves and need to talk to ourselves far more. And so what he's saying is that we spend far too much time listening to our own minds' negativity about ourselves, our own minds' concerns, maybe insecurities, our own, the, the lies that go on in our minds about who we are, A lot of times we can just sit and listen to that and let that snowball in our minds. But no, we need to rather speak truth to ourselves. Like I'm talking verbally to yourself when you're alone. I have to do that all the time. So make sure no one's around because that could be a little awkward. But I'm saying literally, guys, I, I will speak the truth over my life. And this is different than what our culture says. Like, guys, this isn't like the, the self-talk, pump yourself up that our culture says. Like, no, you can do this. Like, no, you are, you are great. You have the strength to do this on your own and kind of this rah-rah speech to yourself. No, it is so different than that. It is facing the reality that, no, you, you can't do it on your own. No, actually... The problem in this situation is your own heart, but the great joy is that Jesus has dealt with it completely. And so guys, just to give you a little window into what that's looked like when I've talked to myself, um, some of the examples, even like in the past couple weeks, like I just have to say, Drake, like your performance is not, your performance in a sermon, your performance in your job is not going to earn you anything greater than what Christ has earned you on the cross. I want you to be freed up knowing what Christ has given you. Or Drake, you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of the finished work of Christ. You have been blessed to exist in a relationship with God of the universe and for that being eternity. This is far greater than any promise that your flesh or Satan is trying to give you in this moment. Cling to Jesus. I have to call to mind the truth of the gospel and what has been done for me in the moments when temptation is arising, when my mind is stirring. And so I ask, what does that look like for you? You might be in this room and you're maybe seeking the approval of another person. You're trying to live in a way so that they might think differently of you or so that they would delight in you. And what I would say to you is that you have the approval of the one who created the universe, who put the stars in place because he chose to go to the cross for you. And his approval over your life is far greater than anyone on this earth. Some of you might be wrestling with guilt that, man, even maybe today you fell into the same sin that you've been wrestling with over and over and over again, and you're trying to be freed from it, but you continue to fall in that, and you're wrestling with guilt and shame. And what I want you to know is that Jesus saw you in that moment, and he chose to die for you. That all of your sin, even the sin that you don't even know about, he took upon himself so that you might be freed up from guilt and shame that you might walk in a freedom that you're an adopted, beloved son, not this wounded Christian who's trying to stumble along in their life. You might have some unconfessed sin in your life. 
You might have something that you've never told anybody because you're worried about what they might think. You're worried if they would still appreciate you like they do now. You're worried if they would still welcome you into the, their community. And what I would say to you is that Jesus, who is perfect and holy, far holier than any of us, he saw you in that state that you don't want people to know. He fully knows you, which for a lot of us, that's our greatest fear. And yet he fully loves you at the same time. That we can have confidence that before God in heaven, he will look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, because of what Christ has done for you. And if God approves of you, even though that sin that you hide, you can freely tell other people because we are all broken people seeking to learn what it looks like to follow Christ in this world. And in the freedom of living in the light, you get to exist where Christ is. And there's, I promise you, joy on the other end of that. And lastly, maybe you just don't, you don't feel on fire for Jesus right now. You're in kind of a dry season where you're like, man, I'm, I'm reading in the morning, I'm, I'm doing these things, but I just don't feel my heart stirring for Christ. And what I would say to you, the joy of the gospel is that it's not about your feelings and how much you love God. It's how much he loved you and pursued after you and he died for you on the cross. So even when you're not feeling it, you know that you have a right standing with God and you can press forward with joy that that feeling would come through obedience to him. And so guys, we as Christians need to remind ourselves of the gospel, but we also need to remind one another constantly. And this is not usually our first response to one another. Like, we can, be, we can be quick to forget the gospel when sharing it with other people as well. And so we don't actually bring good news to people. We try to bring good advice when we sit down with other people. Like, we, we want to share with people practical tips of how to change their life. We want to from maybe from books that we've read, we want to share life situations that will change the circumstances of their life. We are tempted with, man, I want to share with them something new and fresh that they haven't heard before, and I know they've heard the gospel, so I'm going to give you a couple tips about life. And I wanted to pull a quote from a girl named Christina Fox. She had an article about a a period of her life where she was just wrestling with depression and a lot of doubt, and she went to a Christian counselor, and this was kind of her statement of her recap from that meeting. So she says, she gave me, the counselor, advice on ways to manage my time more effectively. She suggested healthy coping skills and recommended that I get sufficient rest. She even discussed the importance of a support system and encouraged me to reach out to close friends. These were all helpful suggestions. There were good things for me to do. But one thing was lacking. She never pointed me to Christ. And guys, I just want to ask you, are you people, when someone comes to you with concerns from their life, are you people who are going to give them practical three-step processes to change, or are you going to remind them of the good news of what Christ has done? already for them. Because tips uh, of budgeting, disciplines, dating, all those things can be extremely helpful. And I think us as a body, we can help each other out with those things, but left alone without the wisdom of Christ and what he has done, 
will lead to changes on the outside without addressing the loss of hope, security, love, or worth that's happening in the roots of their heart. And so we must not assume that people understand this story, but we have to be a people that constantly remind each other of it. And so guys, that's why literally Paul starts off the first three chapters of this book laying out who we are in Christ because he's trying to get to our heart for us to understand and to remember who we are in Christ so that we can live as people who are in Christ. He's trying to call to mind that we do not have to earn a standing, but it's already been earned for us and that we would go out of that posture. And so guys, the, the call from this passage is that we would remember what Christ has done, that we would share the gospel with our own selves so that we would remember what Christ has done and we would remind one another so that Jesus would get the praise for his glorious grace, that he would be exalted and that we would live in the joyful life of obedience to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to celebrate you tonight. We thank you for your finished work on the cross. We thank you, God, that, man, time and time again, I try to earn my way to you. I try to be a good moral person. I try to forget about the sin in my life. I try to press on, and so often you bring me back to the good news of the gospel that I don't have to put in so much toiling effort to make myself right before you, but I get to just receive the gift. So God, I I pray for people in this room tonight, wherever they're at, whether they had a a great day or their summer has just been awful, their summer has just been incredibly hard, would we be a people that would receive the gift of your grace tonight? And would we celebrate you in worship because you deserve the glory and the praise and because it's not about how we're feeling in this moment, but what Jesus has done for us. So God, we, we want to lift you up and help us to move forward in this life as people who have been adopted as sons and daughters into your family. God, not as orphans that have to earn something before you, but we get to be freed up to live in obedience and in the joy of following you, Lord. It's in your name. Amen.